One of the main reasons for doing these programmes was to find some notes of hope and positivity among all the problems that the world is currently facing. For me, as somebody concerned about environmental degradation, one of the most exciting ideas around at the moment is rewilding. This is the rather simple idea of letting nature recover by itself. It's an idea that, while it sounds simple, is really quite radical and also rather controversial. So to find out more about it, I've interviewed here an expert on rewilding, Sam Rose. Sam has interviewed a whole range of rewilding projects in the UK as part of his podcast, What If You Just Leave It? And at the same time, Sam has been documenting rewilding projects through his art of photography. But let's hear from Sam himself. So I am Sam Rose. I currently am a freelance consultant in World Heritage Environment Rewilding type work, various different ones, as well as being a professional photographer. And I'd like to think uh, a podcaster and developing that side of what I do. I've spent quite a lot of time in, in some quite wild areas of the world. So I've been in Indonesia, I've been in Peru, I've been in Norway, uh, areas which are, are relatively untouched. You know, nowhere is untouched by people, but relatively untouched by people. It's a, it's a very relative term. And um, and, I, and I see the value of, of wilderness for lots of reasons, for, for um, our mental health, for biodiversity, for ecosystem services, for climate um, change mitigation and so on. And when I started Rewrite Rewilding, it, it just struck a real chord with me because it is, it's about non-intervention. Okay, it really is. Our intervention is non-intervention. You have to do, it, it, looking at it in the sort of taking the NEP approach, which is the Franz Vera model, you have to intervene at the start to kick start things going, especially if you're dealing with a very degraded ecosystem like a, a formerly intensively farmed arable field. So that intervention is, um, is necessary, but then you can start to let things go. And, and you really, yes, you have to, in the UK, you can't just leave cattle and sheep and, and um, pigs and so on you have to manage the stock because it's still yeah. part of our legislation mm. but you you don't have to manage them in anywhere near the same way as you do in a, in a normal farm and you can let the, the free roaming elements of them and the mixing between the different animals in the different in, in this one large area um really really have an effect and, and just reading about what the results they were coming up with mm. um from this approach, from this this non-interventionist approach, um, was was fantastic. And yes, really it is really surprising. inspiring, isn't it? And, and of course, you went to visit Net, didn't you? Yes, I, I've been a few times actually. Have you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so having now seen it, having first read about it and then visited it, I mean, yeah. was it? Did it match up to what you expected in terms of what? How you Absolutely. It? I mean, it, it really did. It, it feels like. You know, it's it's scruffy, it's frowsy, it's messy. You have, I mean, I, well, I really want to go in April. So I haven't yet been in the, the heart of spring when everything is really kicking off. Um, but you have you have birds there, you have butterflies, you have um, the free roaming animals. You know, the, the wild stock, so to speak. Um, and you just have a, a really different feel to nature that it's it's vibrant and it's actually. Um, doing its best there whereas 
normally nature is so suppressed you know you walk around the fields if you walk in a footpath alongside a field it's a field which is used if if, if you're lucky it might be used for fairly uh, low intensity grazing but even then it's just a green desert you know and the hedgerows are flailed um you've got ponds filled in you've just got almost no opportunity for nature and yet what nep has done and what ken hill is doing and Bella warren in cornwall and others is they um is they are allowing nature to just to do what it wants to do and that is the that that is the i guess the thing for me is is this uncertainty that you 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 go into it not knowing what's going to happen we are we're all about control human beings yes and this is not control this is like going we don't we have a vague idea what might happen but lord knows really what's going to happen um but we've got to trust nature to to really kick in there um which it does i mean nature knows what it's doing frankly we don't and, and interestingly Adrian, my my project is called that the brand of it so to speak is called what if you just leave it Right, which was a, which is what I, I said initially to one of the farmers I spoke to, and, and we had a bit of a laugh about it. And then he's come <laughs> back to me pretty much, you know, regularly since saying, "Sam, I wish I'd just left it," because he's, you know, <laughs> gone into a stewardship scheme, and that's involved this, that, and the other. And he's yeah, actually, you, get you know, complicated, can't could, it, could, it, could have just left it, and it would have been <laughs> easier and better, and all the rest. Yeah, it's but, great. But you, we can't just, leave, we cannot physically do that in the uk it just wouldn't okay. work if we left it fenced a bit of land and we just left it it would become woodland and that's fine yeah. in itself it's not the best uh, solution for nature you have a, to have a mosaic of ecosystems it's, it's far better um but yeah and there are some places where maybe we should just do just do fence it off and let some woodlands come back fully but in terms of this mixed model of a mosaic of ecosystems and habitats which is the best model for um for promoting fast re, re ecosystem restoration and fast growth of biodiversity, then we're never going to just leave it. So I'm keeping the title, but I accept that that's <laughs> never quite going to happen. <laughs> I actually like your title. I, I do. And I, maybe you could just, this is an opportunity for you just to, you mentioned your podcast, maybe you could tell, because that's your brand, isn't it? That's the same title. Yeah, the, the same podcast. brand. So everything comes under one brand, which is so the, the book, if it comes out, the, um, the website, which is whatifyoujustleaveit.info. Mm -hmm. um or dot com i think i've got a dot com as well um and a podcast which is you just need to go to spotify or apple podcasts or any of the other platforms search for what if you just leave it um and i've currently got nine episodes up there and i've got about 10 more on the computer waiting wow. to be done and published right uh, which is exciting stuff um they're about between four, 35 minutes and an hour long, depending on who it is and who, who likes talking more. And I started with Tim Smith. Now, Tim was yeah. fantastic because Tim is not a traditional rewilder. He's what I would call a, a thought leader um, who is very, very instrumental within this sort of broader sector. Um, yeah. And I, I've known Tim for uh, 10 years or so now, and, and he's a, a good guy. And I had a lovely conversation with him, which you may have heard on the first podcast. Mm. But he also put me in touch with a whole range of people within the sector, and that snowballed from there. Um, yeah. So you know, I, yeah, he's brilliantly connected, isn't he? And uh, he is brilliantly connected, and he's also brilliantly free thinking, which is really refreshing. Um, yeah, really lovely. So started with that, and then I've got James, the local farmer, um, who, who's the guy who I said, well, what if you just leave it to? Um, <laughs> a, a range of others, uh, of, uh, including the, the latest one, uh, Ali Driver, who is director mm. of Rewilding Britain, who the whole community knows, and also um, Charlie and Izzy 
um, yeah. from NEP, which is the, the latest one. And uh, I've got Derek Gow to come, which has been my explicit oh, podcast. I'm really That's looking forward to uh, Richard Brazier uh, from yeah. Exeter University, um, a whole bunch of other people, it, it, which in the next two months uh, I'm going to put out there as well. And it's just, it's a conversation. It's me talking and yeah. saying, well, you know, what's this all about? Um, and as I progress to my next stage of podcast, it'll be more a little, it'll be more specific on what they're doing and why they're doing that. And then digging down into it a bit more. And I'm going to try and be a little bit more controversial if I can. Okay. Well, that won't be difficult because there's <laughs> <laughs> plenty, to, plenty to annoy people with the concept. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But what, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I love the fact you've visited a range of these different projects. So yeah. now you're really starting to get a feel for the whole sort of variety in different rewilding approaches. And I wondered about having seen all these different uh, projects, what, what, what you took from that, what you've taken from doing the podcast as a whole. Yeah, interesting. Um, there's a few things I've taken from it. Firstly, is rewilding means every, something different to every single person. Mm, yeah. And that's fine. You know, anybody who says rewilding is this is just wrong. Because it, it's <laughs> not. It has got to be specific. What they do in Ken Hill is different to what he's doing in in the Lizard, in Cornwall, what is different to what um, Derek Gow is doing in Devon and so on. And that's fine because nature yeah. is different everywhere. Yeah, so, good, okay. you know, and and so that that's the first point. It, it it doesn't matter. The name doesn't matter. Don't get hung up on the name. People do get hung up on that. It's not mm. things like the National Trust don't like using the R word, but, but yes. you know it works for people. It's a good brand, you know, in a sense. Um, well, it, capt- it captures people's imagination. I absolutely, think that's it does. Yeah, but people people don't often understand necessarily past what it actually means. So. Right. That's why I've done my exhibition. We'll come back to that in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the book, but we'll come back to that. So so that's one point. The second point, and I think this is a really key one, is to do with landowners. Right. So, you know, I'm I'm, I'm someone who's worked in the charity sector for a lot of my life or, or local government sector, and I see the value of... of, of uh, non-profit sector and what they can do in nature conservation and so on but government and non-profit sector cannot make a difference in rewilding the people who can make a difference to our biodiversity in this country through this type of approach mm. is landowners okay and landowners who are thinking well you know this this makes sense uh, will find a way of getting comparable income through it whether it's through uh, elm stewardship or through tourism or through hiring, you know, allowing people to come in and take photos of, of beavers or whatever it is, they'll find different ways of getting the income. And if, if they can see that, then they will start to adapt what they, what they do. And this has been seen at lots of different places. And I'm working with three landowners in West Dorset now, who all okay. of whom are doing mm-hmm. that, all of whom can see the benefits to nature, all of you can see it basically needs to be done. We need to move away from the, the, the green right. desert, full till, full ploughing approach to, to agriculture. Um, and even if it's just starting by putting five metres uh, margins instead of a one metre margin, around every field, yeah. you know, it takes a little bit of land out. We acknowledge that. But maybe it's, you know, if you do that and, and keep a square bit your mm. your ploughing or your, or your whether it's no till or plough, um, you might still get the same yield and actually what mm. you do for nature by allowing the insects to, to come in allowing the the natural predators of, of uh, pests to come in 
by providing that margin is amazing. So yeah. landowners are the key to... Now, well, I think this is one, this of, one of the things that interests me the most about Rewild because it's becoming a bit of a movement now, isn't it? Mm. A social movement in Britain. Absolutely. And, and what fascinates me is it's not... I mean, yeah, the charity sector is out there, but they haven't led it. No. It has been led by private landowners like um, like, the, like Charlie in, in, in NEP. And they really yeah. have inspired a lot of other landowners, people like themselves, who can understand the challenges of managing uh, an estate or, or a farm or whatever, and uh, are sort of receptive to the arguments and the evidence that, that NEP has sort of provided. So it's snowballing, isn't it? I mean, that, that's one of the most inspiring Absolutely. things about it. When I first started, it was December 2019, when I first started doing this work, you know, rewilding was a thing, and the book was out and, and so on, yeah. but it was a fairly low-key thing, and, you know, it was in the paper perhaps every fortnight there was a little bit of an article about something <laughs> rewilding, and the main it was sort of wolves and bison, yeah. and the big, you know, charismatic megafauna type stuff. But to be honest, since then, it has just grown out of all proportion. You've got yeah. everybody from small stake, uh, small smallholders through to the very large estates, through to people calling on the Queen to... We will yes, that's right. Portion right. Of her, yeah. you know, the Crown Estate land, which I think is a fantastic idea. Frankly, they could they could take a lead. You know, they could really. Mm. Um, but then, yeah, it's come from the it's come from the likes of Charlie and Izzy. It's come from mm. uh, the likes of Don Buskell over at Wellcan Hill, taking a stand and going. You know, we can actually do this, and it's not gonna we're not gonna go bust because of it. We've got alternatives uh, to what we do, and it's gonna work for nature. Mm. Uh, because you know money does talk and you know if you if you read through the book carefully you, you'll see all the different parts where they had to try and, and get some subsidy at net to create yeah, the fence yeah. and and so on and that created their their uh ability to make a rewilding environment and the different levels of stewardship and so on yeah. but the, the the benefits for nature are, are massive you know, mm. we have spent 70 years post-war trying to protect little enclaves of nature which are good for little things which are important little things and none of that should be undervalued at all it is if we hadn't done that hmm. lord i had no idea what yeah just the countries would be in now yes. but yes. it's never we've it's it's maintained a, a status quo and it's sometimes a declining status quo and it's not been able to change because of the way legislation works it's made it very difficult this is a completely different approach this is saying you know, we've got these marginal areas with degraded farmlands. Leave it, fence mm. it in, put some herbivores on, see what happens. And the, and the results, quite quickly, can be incredible. I was over in um, Kingston Lacey. There's in the national. Oh yeah, they're starting there. something there, aren't they? Yes, actually, they are yeah. using the R world. Uh, the R word there is <laughs> great. So in the one one part of the estate, which is called Bishop's Court Farm, uh, they have taken that back in hand and kind of almost by accident in a sense that they were working, thinking about what to do with it. We're going to do farming for nature, you know, much more nature-based farming, but they, then the pandemic hit and they ran, they, they had to furlough staff and so on. So they just said, they just put it aside and left it. Literally oh, really? didn't do exactly. anything. And over two and a half years, the, the, the growth has been, amazing the insects mm. coming back as a new they've got little little owls come back in there first oh, awesome. from the area for 50 that's years amazing. I didn't and know that's that. literally just from not doing anything yeah i mean they're gonna put some red uh some devon reds on next year yeah yeah to, yeah. to start to to you know do the herbivore work um 
but I'm going to go back in the spring and see the insects. But they said there's this buzzing with insects, and then the adjacent fields are green deserts again. Yeah, exactly. And yes, you can see some of the fields were treated differently. So some of them, there's still bare soil, as well as the, mm. the, the thistles and the dark and the ragwort. And some of them have got much more base cover already because yeah. they were less treated for, for longer and so on. So, you know, it just varies on what your starting point is. But it's, it's really just good really to great that. to see it come back quickly as well. And that's, that's, not, that's not targeted nature conservation. That is just allowing nature to take a lead. I think that sort of almost laissez-faire approach is, is really what appeals to me in it. Very exciting. And we must have a quick word about we must have a quick word about beavers because you've been to <laughs> one or two of the beaver projects. And I remember because I used to live in Scotland, you know, twenty odd years ago, and uh, it was a big battle there to get the first beavers back into Britain. And there was a couple of places where they they introduced them. And I think um, at, at that point it was a really hard argument to win. You know, there's the fishing lobby was really against them, and uh, uh, but nonetheless they did start to bring beavers back and. It's been very successful in Scotland. But now, yeah. suddenly, uh, they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I know, they are. It's great. In fact, we've got a project with the landowners I'm working with in West Dorset. We've, we're trying to get four enclosed releases uh, within this year. Um, I mean, that's extraordinary. All of one catchment. Which and are they British beavers you're releasing? Are they the ones from Scotland? Or uh, that will, that, yes, ideally, they'll, they'll come from Scotland. So we work with Derek. Gow, yeah. who is the, the expert in this. And I've been over there and seen his beaver, beaver area. and Yeah, he has his whole farm full of them, doesn't he? That's right. And also I've worked with Devon and Dorset Wildlife Trust, who both got beaver enclosures as well. I, I just think they're incredible animals. They are they are the the ultimate ecosystem engineers, you know? Well, they, you mentioned they, Richard Brazier's work, didn't you? And, yes, uh, and he's right. really shown, Yeah, he's really shown just how valuable beavers yeah. in the British context actually are, uh, ecologically. I, I, I found it very inspiring. Definitely. And they, you know, they, they, they don't just, so the dams provide a mechanism for creating wetlands. They allow a slowing of the water in terms of managing flooding downstream. They allow uh, water to trickle out more slowly in the summer when, so to prevent drought. Um, they filter out pollutants. Like, you know, this just, everything is good about it. Um, the, the, the wetlands they create are, are fantastic for biodiversity as well for all kinds of invertebrates um, amphibians and so on and um, and the, the the way they take out certain trees allows you know it, it, it opens up the canopy it allows right. new growth from from underneath um, and so on so you know they don't eat fish they the it's been shown that there is no there's no impact on uh, really? upstream spawning that. from yeah. um, from any of the fish populations. There's a piece of work I saw from Southampton University, I think it was not not long ago, just a, last year, um, which showed that there's there's no impact of on spawning um, mm. from from the beavers. They just find their way to get over the dams and carry on. Yeah. You know? um, and you know, there's a lot of misconceptions around beavers. I mean, yes, they will. You know, they will end up potentially flooding a bit of a field, a bit of a corner, of a wet <laughs> corner, and you know, so what, frankly. And and if there is an issue with a road getting flooded because of a dam, then you just you just put a beaver deceiver in. You heard of them? <laughs> no, they're great. They're little pipes you put into the dam, and, and basically the water will run out and and reduce this problem you've got if you've got a, a, a something affecting a road or a bit of infrastructure. The beavers will constantly be you know, think what's going on and, and then they'll they'll try and build up the dam to do it, but then they'll move and they'll change the position because okay. they're very pragmatic animals. They'll they'll find the situation. They won't waste their time on something which isn't working. 
Oh, that's that's just so know. exciting to get these animals back. It is, and they are nat- the they, they are they were nat- they belong here. here. They belong we made here. Them you are right. Let's bring bring them back. Bring, back, um, bring them back. Exactly. Bring back beavers. Yes. <laughs> well, that's what Derek's book's called, actually. So. Oh, really? Is it really? Yeah, it's called "Bringing Back the Beaver." So. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah, that's a bit of alliteration there. Well, you must have a word about your uh, your exhibition, which has just just opened, hasn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's currently at Bournemouth University, uh, your place, uh, in the mm. atrium gallery, and it's there until the end of March. Uh, I've got lots of I've got about forty photos in it, and um, because I've divided the work, the photography work into sort of four sections. Really, well, one is the people, because rewilding is is actually, despite the word, it's all about people. Right, people make the choice to do the rewilding. People make the choice to employ someone to an ecologist or a stock person to manage it so they you know it, it is at the end of the day all about people and then you have the the animals they choose to put on it so the generally the large herbivores or the beavers um to help improve the, the biodiversity and the ecosystem health so that might be some old breed uh, cattle like white park or english longhorns it might be some tamworth pigs it might be exmoor ponies it's got to be hardy breeds because they are all um they're generally free roaming. They're free mm. roaming. There's scrub to eat. It's not just nice green fields anymore. This is this is animals that, that work better with the hardy uh, plants and the hardy varieties. And then the, the landscapes as well. So so people, animals, and landscapes. That's the third um, the third category of photos. I've also got drone shots, which are mainly of the landscapes. Yeah, that's uh, really really superb. I love those. Yeah, thank you. Um, have you managed to see it yet, by the way? I, I looked at the pictures online. That's what Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, and then the last set is a slightly more fine arty photography body of work called Rewilding Reconsidered, where I've really tried to get in, uh, you know, very much up close to some of the animals and within the ecosystems and, and you know, kind of glorify the messiness of it, in a sense. Right. It is messy. It's not tidy. It's not neat. Uh, it's, you know, we are used in this country to uh, a green and pleasant land you know uh, pretty patchwork fields with nicely cut hedges and green but fields neat and, yes, yes. And neat and it's like actually there's no life in that you right. know there's life in messiness because nature is messy so we'll let it happen and i've done some black and white photography mm. words to try and capture that so that's the sort of fourth part of it and that's going really well yeah um, I, I just on, on the photography, I mean, I'm really interested in, you know, what you've done there is a, it's a creative response to rewilding as a thing. But I'm fascinated between, because you're a scientist by training and now you're a professional artist as well, which is you're at this interface between science and art. And that really, really fascinates me. I'm interested to hear from you what you feel an artistic practice like this brings to an understanding of a rewild. Yeah, well, I, I guess um, I, I perhaps owe some influence on this to quite a lot of the work we did on the Jurassic Coast when I was there mm. in that we involved artists um, with interpretation projects for helping people to understand. Because concepts like deep time and geology and so on are, are not straightforward. They are they're complex um, to understand. And so if you can get an artistic interpretation of how, you know, deep time is, is able to be better understood, then, for example, then um, then people are more able to go, oh, I get that, you know, I, I mm. get what you're talking about. So I guess coming into this, I mean, I, I'm, yes, I'm taking a scientific uh, approach, but I'm 
well, I'm, I'm, I, I look at it in a scientific way, and it's been quite hard for me to try and look at things more creatively. Right. But as you say, it's a creative response to what is a complex scientific concept. Um, and I guess what I've tried to do is strip out the, the detail of the, of the science and just focus on, well, what are the things that people see? What are the things that people... Um, what, what do I want to tell people about if I'm just explaining in a lift or in a, mm. a short mm. presentation or whatever? So... You know, one of those is, is, well, how does this start in the first place? Actually, that's by the people. How does it happen? And that's where the animals really come into it, the herbivores. And, and where does it happen? And what does it look like? You know, a lot of those is, what does it look like? Well, these are some factors of what it looks like. You know? And, you know, with beavers, what does a, deep, a beaver dam look like? You know? and, and it's about that. It's about, you know, there's, there's a certain element of this which is just fairly straight documentary recording. Okay, right. Um, whereas... What I've tried to do is integrate that into a into a combination of sort of more fine art approaches within photography, mm-hmm. as well as the, the straight, you know, this is something you may not know about um, already. And I guess with good documentary photography of a subject, whether it's scientific based or not, is you're trying to show people either something new or something they know about but haven't seen in that way. Right. So that's kind of what I'm doing in this is showing people something it'll be new to some people, and then there's other bits of it, bits of it, the black and white work particularly, which is not necessarily new. Uh, uh, sorry, it is where we while when people are understanding rewilding already, mm-hmm. those photos might be looking at it in a new way to them. So it, it's all about those sort of two things really. One is showing some people something new, and secondly, uh, it's either it's showing people something they might know about but in a different way and by that you, you're provoking a response you're getting people interested and if you're right. if you're getting people interested and that's kind of where this came from it's a, originally it was about raising awareness of rewilding so and now i don't need to raise awareness because frankly selling the, yeah 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 it's, 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 it's sort of selling the idea it's it? there so i guess yeah. what i've moved on to is not oh, about okay. raising awareness of rewilding it's actually about telling people what it means because i right. think that's the thing that's missing at the moment that's really interesting and if i could just dig into that a bit further yes are you looking for an emotional response to your photographs? Yeah, I mean, as as a photographer, as a professional photographer, you you know, um, a lot of the time you are trying to sort of trigger some kind of emotional response, and that doesn't have to be, you know, super happy or super sad or whatever. But it's also it's about triggering something to get people thinking, rather than just going, mm, "Nice picture, move on." It's like, whoa. Um, that's interesting. That's something I didn't know. That's new, and um, and then well, that that then you know it's a natural response there to start thinking about the subject if you can trigger some kind of emotional response through through the art. I'm going to finish with just a quick question because um, we've been trying to rewild our garden here. <laughs> we have just a small little uh, suburban garden. So you talked about these big landowners obviously yeah. can have a big impact on nature, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, on whether everyone can do a bit of rewilding. Is 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 rewilding a, a garden a good idea or not? <laughs> um, yeah, everyone can take a role in this. I mean, you know, you, doing it at scale. If you listen to my podcast with Ali Driver, it's all about scale, and he's absolutely right. To make a proper difference, um, you need the scale to make it work, but in my view, and talking to other people, everybody can play a part. You know, whether if they've got a big garden, then let's put aside some of it for 
um, to allow it to grow and see what happens there. And then make sure that the seeds um, have, make sure the flowers have gone over and the seeds have gone back into the soil before you cut it. But do cut it, you know, no problem with that. That's what the herbivores would do. So they'd eat it, so you just cut it. Um, you know, in May, there's there's a campaign last year, No Mow May. I really loved that. I thought that was great. It just, yeah, just don't it's do that. inspired but then, idea, that. Yeah. yeah, it is. But the only problem with that is that you might, well, whether you then mow in June and you mow too soon in terms of the flowers. So you have to be careful about that. But, you know, it's allow nature a bit more space in your garden if you have a garden that's all it is it's just allowing you know don't be quite so prescriptive don't be quite so um keen on having everything looking absolutely perfect Uh, allow a bit to go scruffy you know put down some um put down some metal sheets in the sunny areas for slow worms to go under make sure you thunder stuff that that wildlife trusts have been saying for years you know make a log pile with a uh, not one you're going to burn and then allow some grass snakes and um, insects to to go in there. That's all good. We can all we can all make a difference. Rewilding is very is, is difficult in a small space, but you know just follow those basics about you know having a pond in your garden. We dug a pond. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. starting to you know to in lockdown actually. It's starting to look oh, that's good. good. Yeah. Um, but then just one thing with the flowers: make sure they go over first before you cut it. All right. Brilliant. Thank you. That's really, really helpful. Thanks a lot, Sam. It's been so good of you to uh, spare the time, and I really appreciate uh, oh, my pleasure. just to chat. Yeah. Thank you. And, and keep going with those podcasts. <laughs> yeah, will do. Thanks, Adrian. One of the things that interests me is what rewilding sounds like. In other words, if an area is rewilded, would it sound different to how it was before? Or might some ancient soundscape somehow be restored? The following short sound mosaic was put together by the Wildlife and Wetland Trust, who are trying to imagine what the sounds of ancient wetlands would have been like. So they've compiled this, and it's a set of recordings of species that have either declined or have completely disappeared from large parts of the UK. Some of the species that you'll be able to hear here, such as white-tailed eagle and beaver, are now being reintroduced into southern England, where I live. I think this is hugely exciting, because these species have been absent, perhaps for hundreds of years, because of human persecution. And already many local people are getting hugely excited by the opportunity to see these animals in this area once again.
At a much smaller scale, my wife Lynn and I have been trying to rewild our small suburban garden. Here we are talking about it. Heading across our gravel drive, which has fantastic weeds coming up in it. So, here we are in our garden, and it's a fairly, I would say, fairly small suburban garden. <laughs> it's about, I reckon, about 30 metres by 30 metres, so it's not, it's not hyper-small, but it's, it's neither is it really big. So, what we did here, we've attempted to rewild it, and what that means is, <laughs> in our world, it's, it's... What that means is we haven't done any gardening in two years. Much. It's much a lot longer than two years. When did we last do any garden? When I mowed the lawn last year. Yeah, but the, the bottom bit we haven't oh, the touched bottom in bit ten we years. Touched in well, it's nine years, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah. We're getting great power tools in the distance. Well, of course we are. Surrounded <laughs> by people with we tidy gardens. We have power tools. And they do power tools. So we rewilded our garden by stopping doing any gardening, and. If we look around, what's what's happened? <laughs> um, it's got what your average gardener would call very untidy and weedy, but what I would call fantastically biodiverse. I mean, these these weeds are great. These are superb. We've got lovely what we got here: self heal, which is a thing the bees really like. Loads of woundwort, which is a thing that spreads itself absolutely everywhere, but. It's a nice hairy plant and you get wool carder bees that come and collect the fibres to make little nests with. And the male ones will defend a territory of nectar plants and they'll take on everything, even stuff that's bigger than them. And then the female ones come along, drink the nectar and collect up a ball of fluff to make a nest and get rogered while they're at it. So that's a benefit of having weeds in your garden. You get entertaining carder bees. <laughs> did, you, did we have carder bees before we started rewilding it? Not that I know of, because we didn't have any of the hairy plants that they like. So and we've we, now got loads of hairy plants and loads of extra nectar plants. There's this purple toad flax that seeds itself everywhere. So these have all come in, and, and so we do have more species than we did then, do you think? I would say we do, although we, don't, we didn't do any kind of baseline monitoring, so it's very hard to say. But we do have a lot of species in this garden, and a lot of them are using what you would call... The weeds, you know, we've had butterfly caterpillars on the nettles, elephant hawk moths on the willow herb, we've got willow herb everywhere. But it means you get these fantastic big pink and green moths zooming about your garden at night. Yeah, that's, yeah I mean, how many, you've been doing moth trapping for years, haven't you? I've how been many? doing moth trapping for years and we have, checks list, 254 species of just larger moths, nocturnal larger moths in this garden that we've recorded over the past nine years since we've been here. It's and I'm still adding, that. Yeah, it's I'm just still adding new species to the list. Yeah. Every year I'll run the moth trap and um, in the morning there will be new things in it. It's, it's astounding. Exciting. So even in a small little garden like this, yeah. literally hundreds of species. Yeah, just there's of massive, moths. massive biodiversity that you never see. And you've got a theory that letting the... Because we used to have a lawn, but now it's, it's just... Grass Can we go down and growing. have a look at it? We can do that. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. But you're right, so it's weedy everywhere. And brambly. And brambly. It got a lot more brambly, didn't it? Very quickly. And brambles, but they're good, aren't they, for wildlife? They're fantastic for wildlife. They are the default. If There's you've ever got thistle. a moth caterpillar that you don't know what it eats, 
it'll probably bramble. You can raise more or less anything on bramble. Um, we get probably 20 odd different bee species. You bought a fantastic bee book. Yeah, that was a revelation, wasn't to it? To identify um, the solitary bees particularly and bumblebees. We've had bumblebees nesting under the decking. Yeah, we did. Um, and a lot of those use the bramble flowers. Um, and the birds eat the fruit, don't they? And the birds eat the fruit. The foxes eat the fruit. Yeah, we, well, we stood, this is one of that. the funnest, most fun things we've had since we did this approach, is we've got these animal tracks that have appeared, and we're standing on one now, and you can, <laughs> you can even smell the fox, can't you? Uh, yes, well, they are coming up to their smelliest time of year. We did some reading about this, and it, this is coming up to the time of year when they pair up and do mating and making more foxes. So we're hearing a lot more yapping and screeching at night. Um, and they are apparently producing extra smelly smells and <laughs> spreading them all over the place yeah, more than they smell. normally but would. But what interests me is the, also is the sound, because you're right, they've been, we've been getting this nocturnal yapping. Uh, and we didn't know, we looked it up, we, in this, we stood on this track, and it's a barking track. I'd never heard of this. Yeah. Can you remember what that was about? Well, it's about um, a male fox will go along round the boundaries of his territory on what they call a barking track, and, and he'll bark. He yaps, we hear him, we call him Mr Yap. We yeah. caught him on camera once caught or him twice. On camera. And he does, he does the rounds probably several times a night. Yeah, um, and so and we're on a boundary it. then. But you can see, because yeah. he must to create a track as clear as this. Well, you're walking along the badger track. What's really interesting is that the badgers... Yeah, there's badgers as well. a different track from the foxes. So the foxes go around the edge. Oh, they do that one. The badgers just go off and they've motored straight diagonally across <laughs> the garden as that's the shortest route to the wood that's at the bottom corner. Oh, yeah. So and again, can... we've seen them on the, on the camera and it's very clear they all come through the gateway and then the badgers head off. Well, you can see the evidence here. They've been digging this and up, And they've actually. been digging. They dig for... Worms, worms and grubs and leather jackets and wasps' nests and all kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, you can really see that clearly here. The and this, we're now moving down beyond the boundary of where I used to try to mow the lawn. <laughs> this bit hasn't been this mowed This bit in has years. not been touched since to... the year we moved in. Well, I think I did it once. And I did it up. once. Yeah. You did it once, once with a I used to strim it, but then I gave up. You're supposed to it's do it. It's very but... wet. We have springs and things on this hillside and it's very wet. So now it's Somebody a deep... Else is mowing their lawn. It's a deep thicket of grass not at all a normal garden lawn is it no it would make a normal gardener run screaming and in the darker parts of it um yeah about 50 percent of it is moss but you've got a theory that it's full of voles it is full of voles oh, look, that's the wee um, primrose coming you up tend, oh, there's lots of primroses they've, they've seeded themselves and of course the squirrels dig it up and bury things yeah it's full of little holes so how do you know there's voles here well, because in the summer you can see there's little vole holes and little tracks. If you actually dig down into this grass, you'll find little runways, little oh, yeah. tracks that they use, and sometimes even a nest. Oh, really? I don't think I've seen that. And you certainly, I mean, you, you hear them, you hear things rustling about down here at night. It's full of activity. So they love this deep, grassy Well, they do, because they can get underneath hummocky. it. And they can run along underneath the surface and never break cover, which is really important because we have a lot of owls Well, that was the other thing to mention, wasn't it? That we do, there's a couple of, because there's a little community nature reserve that adjoins our garden, more or less, which we have a pair of tawny owls in there, don't we? We do. We hear them every morning and evening. See, look, that's a vole hole. 
Oh, yeah? That's too small to be anything else. Oh, yeah. See, little... Oh, that's cool. A couple of centimetres. So he's gone down under the mass of, oh, yeah. of tangly tussocks. Oh, yeah, tussocks. there's another one. Yeah, and when you start looking... Yeah, you're right. So we, yeah, we have a theory that the owls go and hunt in our garden, although we can't prove that, can we? But we did have a... We saw it. It's been a big... We've been... Not only are we on a frox, fox territory frontier, but we also think we're on an owl territory because they were fighting over it. And, we, and we, I didn't even know tawny owls did this, but last year we had night after night of really intense owly screeching, didn't we? And it's a very different sound. And we, we, again, we looked it up and we checked with somebody who knows yeah, a lot more about birds than we do. And uh, they make a very different sound when they're being aggressive than just the to-wit, to-woo contact call that you get when you've just got some yeah. people communicating. Yeah, I didn't know they like fight to the so death. So there was a pitched battle <laughs> along our, our driveway. Yeah, and we saw one and it, fl- it was just magical. It was in daytime and we saw it fly onto the ash tree and then... It was more or less invisible, I remember. It was completely, you said there's an owl in the tree and I'm going, no, you you're pulling my it. leg, I couldn't yeah. see it. I got the binoculars on it and I still couldn't see it. It was amazing how well camouflaged it was, but that was magical. So we think they were partly fighting over our voles, that's the theory. And we think that's probably why the foxes come here too. They probably eat voles, don't they? Well, they eat everything. We have other mammals, though. What about Colin the deer? Well, we do, yes. You tend to think of rewilding as being a big landscape-scale process. And I was going, oh, well, ours isn't real rewilding because we're not getting large herbivores. And you went, yeah, we are. What about Colin? And Colin is a (laughs) a roe deer. In fact, Colin has a friend because there's a roe doe who comes. There's a doe as well now. But Colin is so relaxed in our garden. And again, we've caught him on the wildlife camera, which is a wonderful way of just monitoring what happens in your garden when you're not in it. And he will come in the garden and munch some bits off the hedge and then just make a little nest in the lawn and lie down there and have a snooze. And sometimes he's in the garden for hours in broad daylight. Amazing. And totally relaxed. And he's completely relaxed. He's so relaxed he does actually go to sleep. I mean, the ears never go to sleep. You can see they're listening all the time. But the eyes are closed. He's completely relaxed. He's yeah. curled up. And that's really nice. As far as he's concerned, this is a, it's a woodland glade that happens to have a house in it. 
Yeah, he's not bothered about that but he's at not all, bothered is he? About that. No, that's been magical, that. It has. So for mammals, we're doing quite well, because we have squirrels as well, but everybody has squirrels. Everybody has squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have squirrels, badger, fox. Bats. And at least two species of bats. And they come and forage over our lawn, don't they? Yeah, because again, I think because we've got this tussocky, thick grass, yeah. Um, and a lot of these, they're native grass species. It used to have sort of nice... It had been reseeded, I think, at one point, but they just They've weren't gone. robust they're enough. They're all gone. So it's mostly native um, bent grasses and coxfoot and things like that, Yorkshire fog. And a lot of those are food for a lot of moth species. And we, we certainly, I would put the number of bats in the garden down to... Uh, the number of moths that we get. So the moths eat the grass, and then the bats eat the moths. And, and then, then possibly sometimes the, the owls, owls eat, maybe bats, eat the bats. But we've never seen that happen. <laughs> oh, we have stag beetles, don't we? That's we exciting. Do. Yeah. yeah. So and the bats worth, eat them. It's always worth leaving. Uh, yeah, there's dead very wood, dead wood and tree stumps. Yeah. But we're very lucky here because we're in a real hot spot for stag beetles. So we see them most years. So now we're sort of near the bottom of the garden and. It's the swamp. It's getting bramblier. Every year it gets more brambles. It's invading the lawn here, I can see. Yes. That's what that is. We have Bramble. done a bit of... Uh, there's a big, massive, dead, fallen branch here too. Yeah, we got the ash tree. Yeah. Maybe we should just leave that, you think? Just leave that for the beetles. I mean, the beetles. Not... Most gardeners wouldn't tolerate that on their lawn, would they? Well, it's not really a lawn, is it? Not anymore. I mean, functionally, it's a, it's a woodland it? clearing... <laughs> Look at what the brambles have done here. I mean, that's not a clearing, yeah, that's no, just bramble. Do sometimes, we do sometimes do a bit of intervention because we did there used to be. We had a path here, didn't we? But that's yeah, gone. Yeah, we used to be able to get through there. Last year we could get through here, but not anymore right Beginning now. Beginning of last year, and then it, it it's just grew. Over. It's just solid bramble. And especially when you get a mild winter like this, they never really stop growing. They don't growing. stop, do they? No. 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 So if we just left it for another ten years, it'll all be bramble, won't it? It would be brambles higher than the house, and, <laughs> and our neighbours would probably have taken legal action against us. Yeah. Well, luckily, not many people can. We're not overlooked see it. by many people. I don't think they'd like we have it. nine immediate neighbours, but they don't actually overlook the garden. All their gardens are really tidy. So now we're right down near the bottom, and it oh, gets squelchy, great. doesn't it? There's a squelchy bit. It's well, a very squelchy bit. There's young beech trees coming up. I've not noticed that before. Flipping Carex pendula, which is the default yeah, thing that big, makes these big tussocks. A big tussock. Well, that's not much good for many things, but the snails quite like it. They we like have to, a lot of them, don't we? Yeah, snails and slugs. All over the house. You can only really grow things that the snails and slugs don't eat. That's our failed attempt of putting a pond in. Yeah, it failed, didn't it? No, it's a, it what did. is it? A swamp. It's a sort of it's a bog garden. <laughs> it's a bog garden. It's not really a garden anymore. I mean, no, look over the, if we look over the fence, it's got we see immaculate lawns. Yeah, um, no, and beautifully, lovingly constructed compost flower beds. And, yeah, yeah. That's it's not like that here. But the wildlife don't. They see, do they prefer it? I think some of them do definitely. Some of them definitely do. I mean, anything that likes to hibernate inside one of these. Weed stems over winter oh, yeah, hasn't got a prayer in next door's garden because no, there, there aren't weed any. Stems. And a lot of the we haven't talked about the birds much. Well, but some of the birds. They love this cover, don't they? They love the fact that there's bushes and yeah. brambles everywhere. I mean, those, that bramble yeah. bush there is probably about I don't know five meters, six meters well, it has, tall. It's grown up the it's grown up the supports for the decking, so it's had a it's bit of artificial over. help. But the birds nest in there, don't they? They do. Do you know how many bird species we have? 
oh, it's about 20 or 30. I haven't, I, I meant to add them up before we did this, but I didn't, but we do have a lot. And one year you counted about 12 nests in the garden, didn't you? I remember that. And the blackbirds love it particularly because they can get all the way around the garden without ever breaking cover. Yeah. And particularly for ground feeding birds like robins and wrens and blackbirds, that's really, really important. Woodpeckers. They really like it. We yeah. have. Woodpeckers. Goldcrests, we have nesting. Bullfinches. Bullfinches. What else? Robins, wrens. I can hear a nut hatch right there. Nut I can always hear can a nut hatch. There's a robin yelling his head off. That's nice. Long-tailed tit. Blue tits. Long-tailed tits. Oh, we had coal tits over the back door last year, didn't we? We did. They found a tiny little hole and nested in that. Oh, yeah, they did. Marvellous. So I think a lot of things benefit, and I think a lot of things like this, just the fact that there's a little space for them where they can just come and do their yeah, thing and not be disturbed. Or eaten. And we don't... They could get we eaten. Well, they could get eaten, <laughs> but, I mean, that's a risk you take anywhere. <laughs> I mean, it's but we haven't... You know, it's a killing ground for these poor voles. Everything's eating them. Ah, come on, they've got great cover here. That's why they like it. There's certainly plenty of them. I've seen no evidence that the vole population is being <laughs> exterminated from this particular wood clearing. Yeah, but, uh, okay. And we don't use fertilisers and we don't use pesticides and we haven't, by and large, imported many plants. We've planted no, there are no flowers. Seeds. Oh, look, there's a primroses actually there's out. Primrose so I did plant out. some and I sprinkled a load of dandelion flowers, uh, seeds rather, and they've, they've but grown everywhere. But we mostly have to stick to the stuff that the slugs and snails don't eat because this is a wet site. Yeah, it's got Parts too, of the garden it? don't really get much sunshine. You put, you put some bee boxes in, didn't you? I did put towels. bee boxes in. And I planted that one works. or two of the, the native things that I've planted have done really well. So we put marjoram in the lawn. That came with us from our previous house. Oh, yeah. And because this hasn't been mowed, it's actually done really well. If you go in under here, oh, yeah. you can see it's made a great big clump. And there's loads of things. The butterflies really like that. And, yeah, there's, look, there's more of it there. And it's gone right through there, and hopefully it's seeded itself everywhere. I mean, the other, the other thing we should say is there is a, there is a downside, <laughs> apart from the aesthetic issues around mess and untidy, because it does look untidy to the untutored eye, but we've got a lot of ticks in the garden now, which we never used to have, and that's because the deer, because the deer. are spending yeah. all this time, and clearly a lot of time in our garden, and now there's ticks everywhere. And of course, they can carry disease, and we have a lot of, I mean, everybody has rats, but we have, we certainly have had quite a few rats. <laughs> yeah, well, they benefit from the increased cover because they can yeah. move around under the brambles and not uh, be in danger of being picked off by the foxes. Yeah, we're hoping the foxes kind of are eating them. the rats, but yeah. at the moment there's a, it's quite a high rat-to-fox ratio. But, it, you know, if you let it go, I mean, this is, it, it doesn't necessarily become more friendlier to people. At all. I mean, it starts to feel like the wildlife's getting the upper hand. Well, it so is. <laughs> I mean, the other thing that fascinates me is that this goes, this goes against probably six or seven thousand years of cultural programming because we come from a long line of we were farming culture, and yeah. the whole, you know, British gardening thing as well. It's the same. It's about domesticating nature, so that's really embedded in our culture and has been. For thousands of years. Yeah, so <laughs> if it's not being managed, there's something really bad. Something really, wrong. And, and it can yes. be threatening and scary. We talk about waste 
ground and yeah. wilderness and, and yeah. barren heath and all this kind of thing. There's something and, dangerous yeah. and to be destroyed or yeah. domesticated. So, so this rewilding for me, I think the reason why it's so exciting, it's really profound because it's, it's like rejecting thousands of years of, of this cultural approach to landscape and saying, no, that was all wrong, let's reverse it. And I think that's why it's so controversial and uh, people get really worked up about well, it. Well, they do. And because I think because you can't predict the end point. If you're yeah. doing habitat management, you're doing habitat management towards a particular goal. You've got a picture in mind of how your woodland, heathland, garden, whatever is going to look. You know, yeah. your wildflower meadow with lovely flowers in it. That is not my wild lawn with docks and dandelions and no, no one would and stuff have planned for this would no they? you wouldn't <laughs> but but that's kind of you know if if you if you um, give over all control to whatever happens to come in with whatever was there to start with you can't predict the end point and i think that's what puts a lot of people off they're quite sort of scared of it in some ways because you don't know what's going to happen well, there's a loss of control, isn't yeah. there? No longer. I mean, it was always a myth that we controlled nature anyway. But people who have neat gardens and neat farms—that's that's underlying their approach to nature. Is they're trying to control it, and this is like saying, "No, let's not, let's not control it." And I think that is slightly scary for it a is lot of people. Scary. There's a big wilderness out there, and it could be. It's also, well, there's a little wilderness out there. Yeah, and it is scary because it could have disease in it. So already. <laughs> the set of the wild. Even yeah. though this is on a tiny scale, you know, I mean, you're not going to get savaged yeah. by a badger or <laughs> attacked no, by but, a fox, but, but you could, example, you could be killed had, by Lyme disease. You if we be. had young kids here, then I would not be encouraging deer in the garden. No, I but you can't, you can't stop them, though, really, unless you put up a big fence. No, but you can make it all, you can make it all tidy and you can do lots of disturbance and... Mm. Uh, and remove the things that they really like to eat, like brambles and Bushes. tussocky grass. Yeah. And, uh, Bluebells. Yeah. <laughs> Roses. Well, it's a very interesting experiment. It is. It's fascinating. And there's a lot There's a lot to unpack there. There is I've, a lot to think about. I mean, there's definitely more wildlife to see, but it's, it's not necessarily a nicer garden to be in, is it? What would you say? It is if you're interested in looking at bugs and beetles, but... Yeah, it's not. But then it was never going to be that. It's on a massive slope and it's all soggy and, and overshadowed. So Well, I mean, to give you an example, we had a dinner party on our decking last year. And we sat there one summer evening and a hornet flew by, which is lovely to see. And then it gets <laughs> captured by this spider, which and then there's this sort of hornet spider battle right in front of us where we were eating oh so we've had people with spiders in their suits. there was a spider hunting wasp that dropped yeah. its spider so landed it's a spider <laughs> right in somebody's, in somebody's suit. suit yeah so uh so there is a downside to lots of wildlife you might end yeah. up eating it inadvertently yeah or put off your food To close, I'm going to briefly mention some ideas that André Pinto has explored in his article Towards a Rewilding of the Ear. He starts this article by asking the question, how can listening change our relationship to the environment and reconnect us with it at a deeper level? 
He suggests that a key part of being a human being on Earth is an aesthetic experience. So we're connected to the environments in which we live through our senses, which include hearing. He discusses the possibility of retuning our ears to the wider sound palette of the world and finds a parallel in concepts of ecological rewilding and changing our relationship with the soundscape. In other words, he thinks we should rewild our ears. To quote from his article, he says this, I believe that this rewilding of the ear lies firstly in our aesthetic experience. Our ears are atrophying, for all we hear is symbols. We listen for meanings that might come shaped in sound, ignoring sound itself. We do not let our bodies resonate to sound, if all we look for in sound is significance about something else. We need to first listen, let ourselves be affected by the matter of sound. Meaning comes later. Music is an extension of our learning to listen. So he suggests that music should reflect and develop forms of listening to the natural world. So to rewild our ears, according to Andre, what we need to do is train our ears to deeply listen. By doing that, we are actively involving ourselves with an environment, engaging with it, creating meaning, and therefore connecting to it in a deeper way. So as he says, to listen strengthens our relationship with the environment develops awareness of our place in it and seduces our curiosity to understand it ever more deeply. <laughs>